0: Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Is magic real? What do we mean by magic? How do we know it is real and can science prove it? Is there something to precognition, telepathy, and telekinesis? What are entangled minds and what is the supernormal and conscious universe? These are the questions I take a deep dive with my guest today. Dr. Dean Radin is a parapsychologist and the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He researches psychic phenomena and has dedicated his career to examining the effect of human consciousness on the physical world. Dean Radin has an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology and is also an associated distinguished professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He is also the four-time president of the Parapsychological Association and elected affiliate of the American Association for the Advancements of Science. Dean has given over 600 talks and interviews worldwide and has published over 250 articles and scientific papers as well as best-selling books like The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal and Real Magic. Dean's research over the decades has made him come to the conclusion that psychic phenomena exist and that magic indeed is real. Dean, it is such a pleasure to welcome you on the Superhumanized podcast. Thank you for making time for us today.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: You're most kind. So, Dean, for those in the audience who may not be acquainted with what you do, and you do a lot, you have a very accomplished and eclectic career. In a nutshell, how would you describe what you do?
1: I'm interested in the nature and capacities of consciousness. Right. So one of the ways that you can look at consciousness is to, to try to understand this is a complex issue because we have consciousness and we're trying to understand consciousness. So it's like the eye looking at itself, which is not so easy. It's one of the reasons why within the scientific world today, and even in philosophy, we don't actually know what consciousness is or where it comes from. At the same time, it's the most intimate thing that we will ever know. Mm -hmm. So there's a paradox there that we know we're aware. We guess that other people are aware too, but we don't yet know how to explain it or even say where it comes from. So one of the ways of understanding something, which has been a very long-term problem and paradoxical is to look for places where it doesn't seem to fit the prevailing narrative very well. So if you look in into the scientific literature you will be told that you are your brain. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of evidence that things like cognition and perception and so on are certainly related to brain activity. But the question is that all you are. You're literally just your brain. As I said, to find whether that's true you look for places where it doesn't fit very well. So we take the topic, for example, of genius. Mm-hmm. We know that geniuses exist. Some people have theories about maybe how the brain might be different in geniuses, but we don't actually know. We don't know the neuroscience of genius at all. The next could be savants. There's a variety of different kinds of savants autistic savants, spontaneous mm-hmm. savants, and acquired savants. So these are all they come about either spontaneously or or you get hit on the head and the next day you wake up and you're suddenly a pianist where before you couldn't even play the piano. So we don't have any idea how that could happen. And then there's a phenomenon called terminal lucidity now also called paradoxical lucidity, which is found in people who are within a day or sometimes hours of dying as a result of some very serious brain problem, anything from Alzheimer's to coma to hepatitis to all kinds of things that could cause real damage in the brain. So these people may have been completely unresponsive for months and then hours to a day before they die, they suddenly become completely lucid They can talk to the people around them, they know who they are, they reminisce, and then they die. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't make any sense either. We don't know how to explain that. But what I've focused on are psychic phenomena. So things like clairvoyance and precognition and that sort of thing, mainly because they're completely amenable to being studied by scientific methods in the laboratory. So we have the chance of learning something about them repeatedly which is, this is the currency of truth in science, something that you can do and others can do, and you can repeatedly see similar things. And so that's what I focus on. And I've done so for over 30 years now as my-
0: And uh, when we talk about psi- And I very much can resonate with your scientific approach towards these, what we call phenomena. Uh, Why has there been in the larger part of the scientific world such a reluctance to actually officially study this, where clearly it can be
1: studied and measured, contrary to, for example, faith? So part of that answer is the philosophy that science sits upon. So we don't normally think of science sitting on a set of assumptions, philosophical assumptions, but it does. And most people who are going through a scientific career, and as when they go through graduate school and afterwards, they're usually not taught that science has a philosophical underpinning, and so they don't think of the idea of the, even the idea that we're that everything that we do in science is based on assumptions. And of course, assumptions by definition are things that you don't know that are true. You're simply assuming that they're true. So the philosophy that science sits upon is called materialism, and it assumes that everything is made out of matter and energy. This is why in the neurosciences today, it is assumed that you are your brain because it's made out of material. It has energetic qualities to it. And it's assumed that somehow our all of our awareness is emerging somehow in the object inside your skull. Mm. And not only that, it's assuming typically in the neurosciences that not only is it emerging, but it's emerging in a classical way, classical physics way. And that then puts pretty serious constraints on things like ESP. You can't have psi phenomena if you're actually in there, and the only way you can know about the world is through the ordinary senses. So that's where a lot of the resistance comes from. And you mm-hmm. see this repeatedly in, in both uh, the popular science press and in, in scientific journal articles, where a lot of people are concerned about why so many people believe in things like ESP. With the underlying assumption of that question is we know it is not true, which is often sad, actually, in these articles. We know this can't be true. Therefore, why do people believe in this silly stuff? So you see that again and again. And it's like a meme in that it's an idea that just takes on a life of its own. And a lot of people just assume that the meme is correct. It isn't correct, because if you actually look at the scientific data that is studying these kinds of phenomena, you find that it is entirely true that some people are mistaking coincidences for psi phenomena, And some people are confabulating it, and some people are fraudulent, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why people accept these ideas. But another reason, which is almost never looked at in the academic world, is maybe they believe it because it's true. So that's what we can bring into the laboratory and then test to see if, at least in principle, can we tell whether things like telepathy and clairvoyance and so on, are they really, do they really exist? And the answer is, yeah, they really do. So sometimes people believe in these kinds of phenomena because they are in fact true.
0: Mm -hmm. And I would like to delve into more detail into the lab experiments in a moment. I think that's something that is also very important for the audience to understand if they're don't know about that is that embarking on a scientific career, on an academic career, can be quite perilous if you dare to think and especially speak outside of the box. Because years of education, years of work can be evaporate into nothing if you are viewed as not serious and uh, i have read in one of your books uh, real magic actually and i've seen that in other heard that in other discussions before that actually a lot of scientists are very interested in these types of phenomena however they don't really talk about it You also mentioned in your book, Real Magic, that one of the most famous scientists of our most recent past, if we want to speak in a few hundreds of years, Sir Isaac Newton, who of course was very well known as a mathematician, a physicist, that actually he devoted most of his time not to studying these sciences, but he devoted a large amount of his
1: time to studying alchemy. Yeah. And it is also true that many other well-known scientists were motivated to do their study because of experiences that they had or beliefs that they had, which would not be considered scientific at all. Mm -hmm. So I I don't recall if I mentioned in the book, but the origins Mm -hmm. of neuroscience, which is the development of ways of measuring what's happening in the brain, was developed by Hans Berger, who was a German scientist who developed the EEG. So the reason why he became so interested in it is because of an experience he had where he he almost was killed in an accident. And the, the next day, he gets a telegram from his sister saying, I felt something horrible had happened to you. Are you okay? And this was back in the 1800s when they didn't have uh, easy ways of finding out things. So a telegram was the best they could do. But somehow she felt that she knew he was in danger. Mm-hmm. And so what he was curious then, was there something that he called a psychic energy that somehow made this telepathic connection between him and his sister. And so the rest of his career was developing methods which are today used in the neurosciences extensively. But the origin of why he became interested in the first place was because of an experience of telepathy. Mm -hmm. There are many such examples like that in the scientific world, but it's part of an uncomfortable history, so it tends not to be. And with regards to Berger,
0: Is there an indication that family members are more connected in a telepathic way?
1: There is, but it's it hasn't been studied extensively. What we do know is that if you do classic telepathy tests, that if you choose people who are emotionally close, not necessarily family members, but emotionally close, they tend to do better than people who are strangers. So whether it's a genetic component or some other component, if you have two people in the same family who don't like each other very much, then at least from an unconscious level, they're probably not paying too much attention to each other. Mm-hmm. And the, all of these psi phenomena have something to do with the way that you pay attention. So mm-hmm. it would make sense then if you have a loved one, part of your attention is going to be there all the time out of the infinite number of things that you could be paying attention to a little piece of attention is always on that other person. I think that's why we even see better results in the laboratory.
0: Mm. And you mentioned it before, you've spent well over three decades or probably even close to four decades to studying these phenomena, to study actually what we would call magic, however, not in the Harry Potter, uh, the sparks flying out of the fingertips way. What inspired you initially to delve into this?
1: i'm asked that question many times mm-hmm. and i really i don't actually know if i had to guess i would guess is that the same reason that a lot of children are drawn to uh, fantasy and science fiction it's the same reason it's a matter of exercising your imagination and children are more prone to magical thinking thinking that your teddy bear is an actual creature right it's taught as a thing but this never actually goes away in most people it transforms in the way that we talk about it but uh, a lot of people are in love with their car they give them names they they treat inanimate objects as though they're living creatures so there's some element i think in most people where you get a sense that yes we live in a rational world and we understand rationality and all the rest but there's, a, there's another world. There's an intuitive, artistic world where things are much more fluid than we experience in our rational, analytical side. So this is sometimes why you'd see a picture of, of the two sides of the brain, so to speak, where the analytical side is all about mathematics and rigid ways of thinking and analytical ways of sharp edges and so on. The other side is completely organic, and it's fluid, and it has pastel colors, and it's, it's a very different way of being. And so I think perhaps as the result of reading an enormous amount of fantasy and science fiction when I was growing up, and maybe playing the violin for hours a day for 20 years, it stimulated the intuitive side of myself. But at the same time, I also spent a lot of time doing analytical work in, in my degrees, And somehow they came together. So I don't favor one over the other and felt that intuitively that sometimes some psychic experiences might be real. And more importantly, there's a way to find out, which Mm -hmm. is the part that really drew my attention. That is, you don't have to just take on faith that these stories are real. You could actually go ahead and test it to see if it's real. So it was something about that balance or that relationship that really appealed to me.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I want to hear some more about what you have been observing or learning about what has been happening in labs. But first, I'd like to actually give a brief overview to the audience about the brain, the mind, and consciousness. Is there a way to explain in a nutshell what they are and how they differ?
1: I would say that consciousness is best understood as awareness, Subjective awareness—you have the—you bite into a lemon and you have an, a subjective experience of what that tastes like. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, in the neurosciences, we we would say that it is the the feeling of having an experience that's about consciousness. Now, consciousness also is part of a big spectrum. So we have a, a thin slice of awareness, which, in terms of the present, we can only experience the present all the rest is either memory or projection. So the present is typically felt in around a 500 millisecond time period. If you think of how long your feeling of aware now is, the rest of it is what is involved with the brain. The brain is clearly an organ that is involved in information processing. So the the neural correlates of consciousness, as they, they call it, we have experiences and we can see correlations in the brain that are reflective of those experiences. And we can do things like uh, you see a butterfly, We could trace the photons to the neurons, to the processing that goes on in the brain, like all the way through, except what we can't see is what is it like to see a butterfly? We know the processing, we know that from the outside, but we don't know from the inside. So the difference then is that brain and mind and all of that is the machinery of that seems to be involved in the human experience. The consciousness side, at least the awareness side, is what is it like to have that experience? So the the two sides of the same underlying process that we call being aware and having experiences.
0: Mm -hmm. You also speak about consciousness with a small C and consciousness with a capital C. Could you explain that to us, please, Dean?
1: So consciousness that you experience yourself, I would call small c, that's a little c consciousness. And as I said, there's a spectrum, so that some of it is aware. It's like like an iceberg above the water is a little piece, and that's aware. But there's this huge thing that you're not aware of, which is the brain is constantly involved in taking in information and figuring things out that you're not aware of. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally things will bubble up, and you become aware of it. Most of the time. You're actually not. An example is you're, you drive in your car, you could be looking at your phone at the same time, which you shouldn't do, and listening to a conversation and doing all kinds of things and get from point A to point B and not even being aware of how you got there, which is frightening. You should be aware of it, but nevertheless, it, it can happen. So all of that is in unconscious processing, which is allowing you to drive the car, even in complex traffic. Clearly you did it. So there's some part of your awareness that is doing that that you're not aware of. So like a paradox. But now I forgot the other part of your question.
0: Oh, and basically it was the how you differentiate uh, consciousness with a small C and oh. consciousness with a capital C. Yeah.
1: So all I've been discussing is consciousness with a small C. So consciousness with a big C, would suggest that maybe the reason why we have any form of awareness at all is because we are a a little piece of a much larger form of awareness, which permeates everything. Mm -hmm. So This is the opposite of the philosophy of materialism. The flip side is the philosophy of idealism, which says that consciousness does not arise out of matter and energy. It was there first. And so matter and energy arise out of consciousness. If that is the case, which, by the way, is the essence of basically all of the esoteric traditions, that consciousness comes first, then that suggests that there's some kind of primordial consciousness that permeates the entire universe. That's the the one I'm calling capital C. So it's the universal consciousness of which we enjoy a little bit because we're made of the same stuff. But more constrained because of the embodiment that Mm -hmm. we currently inhabit.
0: And also in your book, Real Magic, you speak about the three conventional approaches to study consciousness. To hear a little bit more about that, and then I would like to learn what your approach is and
1: also combined with things you have witnessed in the life. So, one way of studying consciousness is through the neurosciences, restarting brain activity. Another way is through the contemplative practices like meditation, where you, you dive inside. The third way is the approach that I've taken, which is to see what consciousness can do, which does not seem to be related to the, to the brain itself, which leads me into then what do we do in the lab? So let's say that somebody reports an, an episode of crisis telepathy. Mm-hmm. I, I get emails maybe once a week of somebody reporting something like this. So one I just got a couple of weeks ago is from uh, a lady who said that one morning, three o'clock in the morning, she heard a loud pounding sound on her on their door of their house. And she woke up and immediately felt that her son was in serious. Her son was a graduate student at Stanford University. And she told her husband, something's clearly wrong here. The husband said, no, you're just having a nightmare. Go back to sleep. But she couldn't because she was, her heart was racing at that point, 10 minutes later, she gets a call from the son's roommate who said that the son had fallen down into and had a serious accident. Mm-hmm. So we call it crisis telepathy because it seems as though she was in a mental connection with her son at a distance in real time, like she woke up because something happened just then. So there's tens of thousands of pretty well-documented cases like this. There are some that are not as dramatic, but nevertheless show some kind of connection between people at a, at a mental level. Many of them occurring, by the way, in dreams or in waking up from a dream with this information or occurring generally around three o'clock in the morning. There's something about the cycles of awareness when you're in a dream state that around three o'clock in the morning, your hormones are, are acting differently than they do during the day. And it may make people more sensitive to these kinds of impressions. But in any case, what you do in the laboratory then is you say, okay, we we need to clearly separate the two people because that's what we're testing. And we have to be aware that for people who have shared memory, like people who live in the same family, a lot of the memory is is linked because of, of their shared experiences. So you don't want to do something like ask one person to think of something. And then try to send that to the other person, because the other person is very likely to think of the same thing. There's and say, think of anything you can think. It's not the universe. It's a small amount of things you could think of. And the other person is likely to pick the same thing. In fact, you can even go on, on YouTube where there are demonstrations of children who are identical twins. And they do this kind of a test where they present a couple of toys in front of one child and the other one is separated, typically just right next to him, but separated by a barrier, present the same toys and say, which of these toys do you think your sister is selecting? And more often than not, they select the same toy, but that's not a telepathy test. So you have to present a randomly selected object or image that one person will send to the other, because then you're decoupling it from their common experience and memory. One of the, the methods that's been used most in recent times is called the Gonsfeld telepathy experiment. Gansfeld is a German word meaning whole field. And it's not exactly sensory deprivation. It's more like an unpatterned form of sensory stimulation. So you put on a a ping pong ball over a half of a ping pong ball over each eye, you tell the person to keep their eyes open, then you shine a red light on their face. And so everywhere they look, they see the same pink color. After a while, your brain gets starved for seeing something because when your eyes are open, you should be able to see something, but you're not able to see anything. So you begin to hallucinate, like more like a dream. The same thing with your ears. You put up headphones playing white noise over your ears. So you can't see anything and you can't hear anything, but you're awake. So you go into this kind of hypnagogic, dreamy state. And it is thought that by reducing external input that the mind or the brain becomes simply way more sensitive to any other impressions that may be occurring. And that this has been tested many ways, this noise reduction model versus ordinary awareness where you're constantly impinged with all kinds of things. And people are much more psychically sensitive in a noise reduced state. Mm -hmm. So in the Gansfeld state, then one person is put into this condition with the red light and the ping pong balls. And they will be in there for maybe 30 minutes. Meanwhile, at a distance, somebody is selected who will send them either a video clip, content of a video clip, or an image that is randomly selected from a large pool of such images. And so they send, they mentally send to the other person. The person who is the receiver in this experiment oftentimes is told to speak aloud anything that comes to mind. This has two purposes. One is to keep you awake because some people could fall asleep in that condition. And the other one is that you can then record what they say. When you, so when you're taken out of this Gansfeld condition, this dreamy condition, you can hear everything you've said because it's hard to remember what you've said. So they play it back. And also in some forms of this experiment, you take a one-way audio link so that whatever's being said, the sender can hear it. And they can adjust their mental sending strategy to try to influence. No, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about this. And then you can hear from their words, whether they're getting what you're saying. So it's fun. So then after the sending period, which might last 20 minutes, you take the receiver out of the Gonsfeld condition and you play back what they had said, and you show them four images if, or four video clips, depending on the nature of the stimulus one of which was the one that the sender was sending, and three decoys. Of course, you have no idea what they were sending, so by chance you'd expect one in four times to just by chance select the right one. So it provides a very simple experiment. You're either hit or miss with a Mm -hmm. 25% chance of hitting, and there have been about 4,000 such sessions conducted by over 20 laboratories around the world for about four decades. And so you, and since the experiment is using the same method in different labs, you can combine all of the results, and come out with a, an assessment as to whether or not people are getting uh, 25% hit rate or or not 25%. So after roughly 4,000 trials, the overall hit rate is somewhere between 30 and 32%, and not 25%. And when you calculate the probability of that occurring, it's trillions upon trillions the one against chance. So that tells us that in a a simple game where one in four should show up and you're getting one in three, essentially 30% instead of 25%, the likelihood of that occurring is so small that it provides extremely strong evidence that somehow information from one person is getting to the other. Mm -hmm. So that's why in the laboratory, we can gain pretty high confidence that it, it is a real thing that can happen. But and somebody tells us their anecdote, there's no way to know after the fact whether an anecdote, what it was. It, I mean, as I said, it could be coincidence or something else. But we know in principle then that in some of those cases, it probably did entail an actual sharing of information. I almost said transfer of information, but it's, it doesn't appear to be like a signal. It seems to be more like a correlation arises in two people, even though they're separate people. Somehow, for a short period of time, they're not really quite so separate. Those are fascinating
0: results. And especially what you've said before that there appears to be, for example, significance, the time of day, let's say 3 a.m. That's a time that uh, you mentioned that keeps popping up and might have something to do with a state of our brain, our hormones, whatever is happening there, that we're more receptive for these kinds of things and i would assume correct me if i'm wrong that there's people who are more in tune with these kinds of things than others so uh, to have you ever encountered a person that was highly in tune with this where it was more than for example the percentage that you've just relayed with the experiments with random strangers under very controlled circumstances? have Do you have a recollection of somebody who really struck you as a, somebody that's just so connected with this, let's call it also potentiality that may be within each and every one of us to some degree?
1: You're asking whether some people have talent in these yes. domains. And the answer is very clearly yes. Mm-hmm. Some people are far more sensitive to these phenomena. The way that it manifests is somewhat different from one person to the next. Somebody might be exceptionally good at telepathy. Somebody else might be exceptionally good at clairvoyance. Somebody else with some kind of psychokinetic effect. So there there seem to be variations in terms of how the talent expresses. And it's not known yet whether this is some predilection of each person or whether there's really some genetic basis or some other reason why these talents differ. But on the other hand, we don't know why people are musically talented, particularly, or sports talented. There's been lots of talents that people have, which their entire makeup seems to, to resonate with in some way. Yes. Yeah, so in this domain, even without thinking about individuals, if you choose randomly selected college sophomores who want to do an experiment, And they get credit for doing experiments. You bring them into the lab, you do this experiment, the Gonsfeld experiment, and they will generally get around 30% on average. Mm -hmm. If you take a subset of these people who are involved in the creative arts, so they might be dancers or musicians or creative writers, they tend to get more like 40 to 50%.
0: So
1: this is already telling us something that there is something about the nature of openness of imagination, where if you just look at the correlation between the degree of creativity, you take a large group of people and you measure creativity in some way, that there's a positive correlation between their experiences of psychic effects and their degree of creativity.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So Mm -hmm. it's very common for people who tend to be artistic to have these experiences more often. I think partially related to the fact that they are not as analytical as somebody who might be a mathematician, for example, right? Or an engineer. They, they tend to live in another space, the intuitive space. And that's where these things tend to penetrate more into awareness.
0: Yes. And
1: as of far, course, as far as talented individuals, I've also met talented people, especially in the domain of clairvoyance, who have, let's say, let's put it as they, they are to the ordinary athlete, like an Olympic athlete is to me. So if I were used as to provide the baseline for how high people could jump as in a high jump for me, maybe three feet at my best, Mm -hmm. but the world record is eight feet. The the world record could jump literally directly over me. And most people actually, which is astonishing when you think about it, but that's, the difference in levels of...
0: And when you speak about the analytical mind, of course, that's also a very precious thing to have and to use uh, for those of us who also want to work more with their creative and intuitive side. I think the key is to be able to move between these two states. and there' are certain, whether they're herbs out of the traditional Chinese medicine, of course, right now psychedelics are going through a resurgence and being used therapeutically. There are certain things that can help meditation and breath work also that can help shut down your default mode network, which I think is also very helpful to get into that state where you, your baseline is more the intuitive versus the analytical. Do you have any experience with that? Had you did you observe anything in relation to that?
1: What is probably closest is when we work with meditators in these experiments versus people who have not meditated.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, meditators almost always do better. So, this I think is primarily because most of these kinds of experiments involve use of your attention focusing attention on something and meditators the whole process of meditation is about using your attention focusing attention it could be an open focus it might be a closed focus it might be concentration form it might be mantra it could be all kinds of things but people who have some experience in being able to control what their mind is doing or simply able to do the task at hand, it may be beyond that as well. So we've worked with sometimes with meditators who have 20 years of daily practice, including with methods like Zogchen and, mm-hmm. and Zen meditation, which are non-dual forms. So what sometimes the people who do that kind of meditation and, and almost any other kind of meditation, eventually with a little bit of talent, They'll start using words like spaciousness and timelessness. And so what they're talking about is that their internal sense is that they extend through space and they extend through time. And so if you take a neuroscience perspective, you can say, well, that's an interesting illusion because they look like they're not extended in space and time, but maybe some aspect of their consciousness is. So we've done experiments to see if there's an ontological way of measuring, not so much, not the extension through space, but the extension through time. Mm -hmm. Can your awareness extend through time? So we use a a method we call presentiment, Mm -hmm. where we present different kinds of stimuli at either unpredictable times or different kinds of stimuli at predictable times to see how the body and brain respond to them. And it's not so much how how we respond after the fact, but whether we respond before the fact. Because the whole point here is that if you're actually extended in in space and time, then the temporal part might go forward in time and backwards in time. Backwards in time is confounded with memory, so we can't really test that too well. But forward in time, we could test really well. So one example I'm using here is an experiment we did with these long-term meditators where they wore glasses that had little tiny LEDs in them that would occasionally flash. And also they were earbuds that would occasionally make a beep. And so the very, very calm stimuli, because they were deep in meditation when they are doing the experiment, we didn't want to pull them out. But the question was, if you're about to get a light flash, even with your eyes closed, normally what happens after the light flash is the occipital lobe of the brain lights up, which is because that's where visual information is processed. And before you get, or after you get a, an audio tone, the audio cortex will light up more on the side of your head. We wanted to see whether in a condition that they would describe as timelessness, whether their awareness was spread out in space and time such that they would actually begin to perceive these events before they they appeared to actually occur in, in everyday world. And so we did a, a 32 channel EEG While these stimuli were going on, and we found that one and a half seconds before the stimulus, we saw the appropriate area of the brain begin to be stimulated before either a light flash or an audio tone in the meditators. But we also had eight controls who had not meditated. And for them, it was completely flat. So they did not show any objective evidence of being extended through time. We only saw the effect after the stimulus actually occurred for them.
0: Fascinating. And so all of the, medit- the group of the meditators uh, reacted basically the same for
1: all of them? We, we do group analysis. So as a group, yes, they showed a presentiment effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, some showed it more than others, but people are different. So we, we would expect there would be some idiosyncratic difference, but we're usually more interested in what is happening to the group because we want to be able to say what seems to be true on average. Mm -hmm. as opposed to studying a individual, which is interesting, but it doesn't tell us what people are capable of. It would only tell us what that person is capable of.
0: And specifically, when you mention a group of people and a group of people meditating, there have been these occurrences in the recent past, especially at times of global challenge, where these big global meditations, whether they're virtual or whether people meet in one place, have been organized. When a big group of people come together and focus on the same intention, does that really change the physical world?
1: It's a really good question. We would like to think so. And and there's some evidence that maybe it does. It's not so easy to discriminate between two possibilities. So one possibility is that the individual minds and group minds can act like a force-like effect, which is causal to make things happen. And so we, we can do experiments. The one you may be referring to is the global consciousness experiment in which we look for large movements in the mass mind as a result of things that are on the media. So during the election in 2020, for example, a lot of people were focusing on that. Probably billions were focusing on the same thing at the same time, which is unusual if you think about what is happening in terms of individual awareness. Mm. You, if you measure awareness by a little vector. Each person is like a little arrow pointing in different directions, and it's it it all washes out terms of overall mass mind. But during these special events, you can imagine all the little arrows align. They're all going into coherence. Mm -hmm. Does that do something or not? So the way that we measure it is with random number generators. These are, are truly random bits that are being created by these devices, electronic devices. And we have them all around the world. And normally, they're producing maximum entropy. It's maximum randomness. That's what they're designed to do. So the zeros and ones are coming out totally random. But what we have found uh, in 500 events for over 20 years, because these events don't happen that often, we find that the random number generators are not behaving randomly when these large-scale events occur. So one way to interpret the result is that the movement and mass mind actually does cause coherence to occur in the physical world so that they're causing something to happen but the other interpretation which you see again and again in laboratory experiments involving psi phenomena is that there's some kind of a goal-oriented effect happening that i want something to happen and it happens But does that mean that I caused it to happen or is there something even stranger going on? Like I'm selecting an event that goes through natural fluctuations, like most things do. And I get the intuition of, oh, if I intervene with this system right now, that's when it's about to change, like a synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, I didn't cause the fluctuation. I intuited the time to intervene in order to take advantage of the fluctuation. So these two possibilities are very difficult to separate in laboratory studies and in the real world, hardly ever know what's going on. So it could be one or the other or both at the same time. We don't know. Mm. So this is an ongoing debate within Mm -hmm. the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we see something happen as a result of an intention, did I make it happen or did I take advantage of a fluctuation that would have happened anyway? So one is like a precognition effect. The other one is a causal effect. My own sense of it is that both of those are happening at the same time. Yeah. Precognition is looking from the future backwards, and a psychokinetic effect is pushing forward into the future. So there's like, think of time as having elements that go in both directions, causal and non-causal or mm-hmm. retrocausal. They seem to come together in the present, and that's the only thing that we can see is the present. But I think that they're actually converging in some way. And, of course, interestingly, this is not that strange from a physics perspective. Mm -hmm. Quantum physics. It it could happen in physics. It only seems strange in in the everyday world because we, we don't experience microscopic physics. But I think it's something like that. There's some kind of interaction between past, present, and future that makes things happen. Mm,
0: mm-hmm. That is truly fascinating, Dean. And what you spoke about before when these uh, big events happen where a mass of large part of humanity is focused on, is that what you call global coherence?
1: Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that, of course, leads to the question also, the one thing is events happening and a large part of humanity observing them or reacting to them. But it also, there's another side of this coin, which uh, for me brings up the question, are we creating this world with our minds?
1: In a trivial sense, yes, we have effects in the world all the time as we see with things like climate change and lots of other things. If you're asking a, a more abstract question, does observation create reality? There are many physicists who thought so, like John Wheeler at Princeton, was a very famous physicist. He had this idea that we live in a participatory universe. Mm-hmm. that somehow, And many other physicists had similar ideas that there was something special about the nature of consciousness where we know that it's real. It doesn't exactly seem to be physical at least not physical like other physical things that we know about. And that when you look at a, do a quantum mechanical analysis of oh, okay. as best as we can tell the world is fundamentally, at least in a physical sense is quantum mechanical, which is not physical. It's mathematical abstractions about possibilities and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the example I use sometimes is that we, we want to look at a butterfly We'll do a quantum mechanical analysis of what's going on. So the butterfly is there, a photon has to bounce off of that uh, butterfly and come into your eye. So we can, uh, we can describe the photon extremely well in quantum mechanical terms. We can describe the retina, we can describe the, all the way back into your rest of your brain and somehow you magically see something happening. So if you were to put a couple of additional steps in there, there's a photon, there's a photodiode. The photodiode is detects that a photon occurred and that goes into a counter. And then that goes into something that the eye is looking at and that goes into the brain. Each step along the way is a physical object that can be described in quantum mechanical terms. If you wanna find out what happened when the photon hit the photodiode, you, you can describe that in quantum mechanical terms too. It's basically a giant matrix or a wave equation. That interacts with another one. If you're using matrices, you create the tensor product, the mathematical operation, which shows that once something interacts with another thing, like a photon and a photodetector, they become entangled. They're Mm -hmm. they're now in a superposition of states. It's no longer one thing and another thing. They're a a thing that's both. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then if the output of the photodetector goes into a counter, now you just have a much more complicated quantum mechanical system. You take the tensor product of the photon photodiode with the counter, and that's a gigantic quantum system. And you keep doing this, and it creates what some physicists have called a chain. The chain is that somehow you start with this quantum mechanical description of waves and, and possibilities. And yet, at some point, it turns into the everyday world as we experience it. So there's this chain that looks quantum mechanical, but at some point it breaks and here's the world. Yeah. Where does it, where does the break occur? So this is why many people have suggested that the break occurs as a result of observation.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's the transition between quantum to classical or everyday world. And my colleagues and I have done many experiments to see if we're able to notice a difference in the behavior of systems which are quantum when you bring observation into the mix. Mm-hmm. And so we think we have results that say, yeah, it actually, we're not creating the world so much as modulating what's there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because it, again, this comes down to a philosophical question. Is everything completely start from consciousness in a pure idealistic way? Everything is consciousness. Somehow the physical world emerges out of that, or. Is there something even more fundamental than consciousness from which emerges conscious awareness and the physical world? So this is called dual aspect monism, sometimes neutral monism, in that the physical world out there really is a real thing, right? It is not completely independent of of consciousness because consciousness also was a real thing. And so they do interact, but the reason why they interact is because they both are emerging out of something even more fundamental than either one. Mm. So I'm thinking that maybe that's the way that I, uh, my favored philosophy at the moment. Yes. Because the physical world does seem to to exist independent of us. Maybe it's precise way of of describing it, the names we had given to it and, and things like physical constants and those sorts of things those are human constructs but i still think it was out there it was there from a long time ago before there was any humans at least to observe so they so mind and matter can interact because they emerge out of something else and so what's interesting is you look at the esoteric literature like the kabbalah and you find that the tree of life the way of of describing where things come from it's really fundamental. And then it starts manifesting into different branches, some of which we can call consciousness, our, our sense of awareness, and others our physicality. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, the Samkhya theory in yoga is basically exactly the same thing. That there, it's not that there's only consciousness, but there's consciousness, there's physicality, and somehow they're interacting and coming out of something even deeper that we don't have a name for yet. So no
0: uh, culture, religion, philosophy in the world has a name for this more even more fundamental
1: thing, if we want to call it thing. There are names. The Kabbalah has a name for it. I'm not sure whether the yogic traditions do. I'm sure they must, but I just don't know what it is. Yeah, we humans are experts in naming stuff, but the but the qualities of it, the nature of that thing is something that would be beyond our ability to access. So maybe a mystic in a mystical state can have an experience of that. But as often happens in mystical states, they can't describe what happened. So, the, yeah, they know what happened, but it's ineffable. So then they spend the next 20 years trying to explain what the ineffable is.
0: Yeah, it escapes the, the possibility of logos. It It just, right. yeah. What is your take on the current state of science with regards to consciousness and with regards to magic?
1: I assume you mean real magic? Yes. So as far as consciousness goes, I think we're in a renaissance. 30 years ago, for someone to say, I'm interested in consciousness and I'm going to study that as a scientist, you would not have a job for very long, because that was only in in the domain of philosophy. But now there's a a conference on some aspect of consciousness practically every day somewhere in the world. It didn't, it actually, it didn't slow down during the pandemic period. It probably accelerated because they're just so much easier to do online conferences. So it's now an acceptable topic within the academic world and there are journals devoted to it. So it's a thing now. So Mm -hmm. you you can do this as an academic. So that's new. That's relatively fast and new. As far as magic goes, it turns out that the study of conjuring and illusory magic, like stage magic, that is also a thing now. You can find uh, journals that have special issues on the study of performance magic because it provides a, a way of understanding better how perception works and how cognition works to say nothing of how easy it is to fool people and all the rest of it. So these are also acceptable areas of study in the academic world. The study of real magic is still very much taboo. Mm -hmm. So if you look at in the academic world, there are a lot of studies, as I mentioned earlier, about why people believe in things like this. Why do we believe in magical thinking? When you read through those papers, you find that almost never is the possibility suggested that the reason why people believe in these things is because for some people it works, they can do things. Well, that's not yet admitted in the academic world, so you can't talk about it, It doesn't come up. On the other hand, if you actually look at what people have experience and what they actually do as they're part of their practices, a lot of people are using magical practices in their life and they may be shy about admitting it. No, nobody wants to be shunned because they're a witch. But nevertheless, it's very common. It saturates most religious rituals. It's a thing. So mm-hmm. the, one of the reasons why I use the term magic in, in my most recent book, Real Magic, was to show that some aspects of traditional magical practice are also perfectly amenable to be studied in a scientific manner because they are identical to what people call psychic phenomena. So we know that the domain of divination, which is a magical practice, that's somewhere between precognition and clairvoyance, both of which have been studied extensively in the laboratory. The force of will type of magic, which is normally how it's portrayed in movies, that too has been studied in terms of psychokinetic effects. Mm And even the third category of magic, theurgy, which involves working with or manipulating spirits, what spirits do, that has been studied in the sense of, at least in the laboratory, on mediumship, mm-hmm. where we, we can study our mediums actually providing verifiable information under conditions where they couldn't know anything about the deceased person that they're they're in contact with.
0: Why is the existence of real magic such a threat to many people, or whether they're
1: religious or non-religious, why is it such a threat to our system? Anything that challenges the status quo is a threat. So it is it's a major challenge. Many traditional religions are have prohibitions against use of magic, like fully accept that magic exists, but unless you're anointed in some fashion within whatever the church is, you're not allowed to use it. Mm. Like in Catholicism, it is a deadly sin. To use magic, mm, as it is uh, in Islam. Well. Yes. Yeah. So in in science, it is uncomfortable to think about the idea that some kinds of psychic effects might actually be real because it challenges the philosophy of materialism. And for it makes sense why people would be frightened of this or don't want it to be to exist because we know the materialism as a way of thinking about the world is extremely effective. It, it's providing this interview, like this is all technology based all the way on materialism and it has nothing to do with magic. But the other reason why I think especially why governments in particular are afraid of magic is because within the magical traditions, there are no secrets. A combination of telepathy and clairvoyance, nothing can be secret. So now try to imagine a government which has no secrets. it it could not exist. And people could be saying something which is blatantly not true. And a lot of people will believe it because they don't know any better. If there were no secrets, you can instantly find when somebody is lying about something. And so the the structure of the world wouldn't work. Our legal system wouldn't work. Basically, everything wouldn't work. And so you have so much of the status quo that uh, would be against something which would open a, to make, make any kind of organization completely transparent, that there's an enormous amount of pressure to don't do that. This is right. one of the reasons why the federal government doesn't provide any funding at all for this kind of research.
0: And yet different governments, whether it's the U.S. government via the CIA or whether it's the Russians, have in decades past actually conducted studies into psi phenomena. Yes, but
1: think of the paradox. They, they conducted studies in secret yes. about a method that unveils any secret. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's something about that doesn't feel quite right. But nevertheless, that is what has happened. You're right. The mm. U.S. and Russia and probably other countries have looked in deeply into these questions, mainly for the advancement of intelligence purposes. Yes. So. If you think about the the military intelligence world, I support the idea of intelligence, because if we don't know what what a potential adversary is doing, that gets us in this real trouble very quickly. If we do know what they're doing, at least we can respond to it in an intelligent way. All of the rest of it, it comes down to politics, basically, in terms of what what is actually done by one country to another. Uh, and sometimes by ignoring the intelligence, because it's uncomfortable for one reason or another. But yeah, so sometimes people know that I worked on the, the US government's program, they say, is it, is it still being used? I don't know, I'm not on that program anymore. But I hope it is, because mm. it is a viable source of useful intelligence information, which mm-hmm. only makes us make better decisions, ultimately.
0: Yeah. In your book, you're also talking about what would happen if tomorrow everybody starts to believe in magic. What would happen?
1: One possibility is uh, that the status quo would be seriously shaken. We would be a different kind of world at that point. There are lots of, of beneficial things that could happen, for example, in healing. Part of mm-hmm. the magical arts involves healing. Modern medicine is really good, especially in emergency medicine. But there's all kinds of things that doesn't work very well in terms of chronic problems. Some magical methods may be extremely effective there. Energy medicine. Yeah. Energy medicine is like this far away from magic because mm-hmm. it works at a distance. In which case, if we knew a lot more about why energy medicine worked, I think it is a strong overlap with what we currently call magic. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that if, if magic became common knowledge, we would certainly know that there are some people who are the equivalent of Olympians in that domain. That opens a bit of a problem because uh, Merlin class magicians can do all sorts of things that others cannot stop. Mm -hmm. So you think of a negative spin, there will be magic wars going on because the magic is powerful. Any form of power like atomic weapons could be used for good or bad. So one would hope that the develop the, in the process of developing these methods, that our morals and ethics would also be developed, because without that, we could be in very serious trouble.
0: Absolutely, and in your book, you actually also you also warn a little bit about practicing magic, specifically with regards to potential psychological problems that may arise. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Dean?
1: Power is seductive. And seduction leads to corruption. So I think I mentioned that in terms of, if you look at a typical grimoire book of spells, most of it involves the manipulation of other Mm people, like the whole class of love spells, which is a very large segment. It's about manipulating what other people do or want. That's black magic. Black magic definition is to override somebody else's free will. And yet the seduction of the power to do so is very strong. And so it, that's a danger. It's, a, it's not only a psychological danger, it's a danger to everyone because of that. That's why the, probably why in, certainly in the yogic tradition and in many of the magical traditions, there's all kinds of warnings all along the way that you first have to spend a long time getting your, yourself grounded and psychologically healthy before you start doing this stuff because the seduction of the power is so strong, it's very difficult to resist otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so if you come into this, as I know people ask me oftentimes, they want to make money. They, they want to get things, they want to do things, and they're clearly coming from a position of power first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I recommend that people don't do that, because we're talking about a form of interaction with the world, where, and which is essentially like a karmic reaction, you can do something that will give you a lot of power and perhaps give you stuff that you want, but not at zero cost. Yeah. So the decision about how you use that power then becomes very important for everyone and in particular, the person who is exercising.
0: And the seduction of power aside, I believe that we also need a very stable foundation before we start. Working with certain forces. Yes. If you just want to liken it to electricity, you wouldn't just go and uh, touch an electric outlet or you wouldn't just walk into a fire unless you have taken certain stabilizing protective measures in the first place.
1: You don't give a bomb to a baby. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, you don't give a bomb to the baby. Having said that, because I know uh, a lot of people in the audience would probably be very interested in your answer to this question. How do we ask the universe or the spirits to
1: help us with a task? We ask, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. you have to have an assumption that something or someone is listening and learning how to get one's ego out of the way, at least recognizing that an ego wants something is one of the reasons why in the eightfold path of yoga, Mm -hmm. That the first half of the entire path is simply learning to get your body and mind in shape Mm -hmm. and then getting your your ethics in shape. And that's long before you start encountering the cities, the special powers that, that arise as a result of meditation. And this clearly came about as a result of many thousands of years of watching what would happen if you get somebody who's driven by power or ego or something, you give them a bomb. They will blow themselves and other people up accidentally. So it's simply a matter of understanding that, as Spider-Man said, with great power comes great responsibility. Actually, it was Spider-Man's dad, I think, or stepdad. Wasn't it his stepdad said that? With great power comes great responsibility. But anyway, that that idea is absolutely true in any realm where there involves power, including the magical realm.
0: That is very true, Dean. And I have thoroughly enjoyed your work for many years now. For people who want to delve deeper into these particular topics, I highly recommend your book, Real Magic. You also men- explain a lot of the history. You mentioned a lot of really great resources. However, here within the parameters of this interview, what are some of for you personally, what are some of the most important resources, texts, or people, practitioners that have informed your perception and perhaps also practice? I list the references that I mm-hmm.
1: used in Real Magic, and I forget how many, probably a few hundred such references. Books of history of magic, lots and lots of books and articles about experiments that have been done in scientific experiments that show that some of it is actually real. There's a number of, of very good resources on the web. There's like online mystery schools, which are quite good, especially in an era where people are looking through little Zoom windows rather than being able to go out into the world. There are a number of mystery schools, which are probably the, the closest to the modern equivalent of ways of learning how to do all this stuff. And there's nothing like actually practicing it with somebody who knows what they're doing. There's only you can only learn so much through books and watching videos and stuff. I don't know of any of the mystery schools that are back actually in class now, but typically you'd go for a one or two week retreat where a lot of it involves meditation, but then a lot of it also involves different kinds of practices and rituals that are involved in the the design of magic.
0: Yes, uh, is there perhaps a name or two of these mystery schools that you uh, would be willing
1: to share? I, I will I will send you a list after they're they're in my head, but to retrieve the exact names right now, i I can't do that. I'll send it to you. I
0: appreciate that. and I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. And Dean, there's a question I ask every one of my esteemed guests, and that's with regards to the practices that have positively informed their life and elevated them mentally, physically, or, spiritually uh, would you share one of your most important practices with us
1: for me it's probably reading Mm -hmm. right so this is like a tiny bit of of my library they have books all over the place and it's it's books on philosophy and religion and spirituality on science a very broad range and I tend to read a lot and that's you you think the way I think of of a book is somebody had something to say and they've somehow managed to encapsulate it or crystallize it into a little space. So some books are easier to read than others, and the information is easier to retain than others. But eventually, you see that there's just like a, somebody who is a script writer will tell you after a while, there are 36 stories. And that's all there is, basically, because human stories are, are constrained. But we like the huge variety because there are little tweaks and spins you can do on it. The same is true for the domain of magic and spirituality. Once you've read a hundred books and different forms of meditation, they're all basically saying the same thing in different ways. And so the value of, of looking at a, of a wide range of traditions that are going in the same direction is that you start to get that overview effect. And so you, you learn pretty quickly that the differences in traditions are interesting, but they're all like circling around a core idea mm. so you can see that quickly after a while and you can pick up a book on a meditation style you'd never heard of before and say oh okay that's pointing at the same direction that everything else was pointing and the same is true in every discipline is like this so my method basically is the is an academic method yeah For some people and i've been meditating on and off for 50 years too but that's that's because i, I know it has health benefits But that is not my major way of understanding the nature of reality. For some people, it is, but not for me. I I go through this method. (laughs) Yes,
0: that resonates with me a lot, too. And Dean, for people who would like to learn more about you, reach out. Where can they do so?
1: So my personal website is deanradin.com. I work at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is Mm -hmm. noetic.org. And then if you go on YouTube, you will find hundreds or even thousands of videos, most of which I have no idea how they showed up on YouTube, but somehow your life ends up in the digital universe somehow. So lots of my talks and interviews have ended up there. This interview is probably about number 650. <laughs> so they're, they're out there. And the reason why I do this, and this takes time away from my actual work, the reason I do it is because I know that people are interested in these topics, and I know that oftentimes there's confusion or elaboration of what we actually know mm-hmm. about these kinds of things that can easily lead people down the wrong path. So I try to be, I try to make it interesting what I'm talking about, but also as close to what we think is real as we currently understand. So magic is real. Generally, it's pretty weak, but it's a real thing that's it's like this big. Occasionally somebody will come along with a lot of talent and can do really remarkable things, but they're relatively rare. Dean, thank you so
0: much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And thank you for this illuminating conversation, sharing your decades of experience and thank you for everything you do and all the information you so generously put out there for the rest of us. I have a strong sense that your mission is also to elevate humanity in a way and i'm very grateful we have connected thank you superhumanize accelerated evolution